I remember his hair was wild. I did get a bad feeling about him, of a very wild sort of character. In the late 1960s, a man turned up at Dunleary Port in Dublin. Destitute and dishevelled, he called himself Michael and began working on board a local fishing trawler, where few questions were asked. What nobody knew then was that this man had managed to escape from the United States after being charged with first-degree murder. Joseph Maloney had become Michael O'Shea. I'm Pavel Barter. From RTE Documentary on One, this is Runaway Joe. Episode 4, Living Large. Shortly after arriving to Dublin in 1968, an accident on a trawler put Michael O'Shea out of the fishing business and into a new job at an engineering company in the west of Dublin City with the father of the man I'm about to meet. Your father knew him from 1968? Around that time... The first time I met him, I even knew he was working with my father in the engineering company. This is Pat Fitzsimons, who still remembers his first encounter with the man who called himself Michael. I had dropped a car down to Kildare and my father said, I'll send somebody down to pick you up. And it was Michael who picked me up and gave me a lift back to where the place was in Ballyfermot. I says, I'm just, I've just started, I'm in sales now, for your dad. So then after that, my father became more friendly with him. He didn't stay long working for my father. Yeah, he was very gregarious and outward and so on, you know? And then I didn't see him for a good while, but I knew my father was friendly with him. For a fugitive on the run under the pseudonym Michael O'Shea, Joseph Maloney wasn't shy about getting known around Dublin, meeting another local man around this time, Jerry Johnston. Michael O'Shea was, uh, I encountered him, I think it was the late 60s or the early 70s. Jerry has had a long career in the Irish movie business doing special effects that spans almost 60 years. And he's worked with some of the most famous names in cinematic history. Uh, well, I worked with John Borman. Did four or five films with John. Then I went on to work with uh, Stanley Kubrick on a film called Barry Lyndon. After that, um, I went to work with Steven Spielberg, Saving Private Ryan, yeah, with uh, Tom Hanks. Back in the early 1970s, Jerry had a workshop at Ardmore Studios, Ireland's longest-running film studio. One day, he had a call from a friend who'd met a man hoping to get a job in the film industry. Jerry's friend, Pat, had an unusual story about how this man, who called himself Michael O'Shea, came to be in Ireland. Pat told me this story. He met this guy in the hospital. He, he got injured on a ship. He got the boat from out of America and a big German merchant ship out of New York. Now, at that stage, I put two and two together and I said, well, he didn't pay, he wasn't a paying passenger, so he was a stowaway. He got switched from ships. 
he moved from a, a bigger ship to a smaller ship, and that was out in the international waters of Ireland. This story that Michael O'Shea was telling of boarding a ship as a stowaway and arriving in Ireland might explain why the FBI and the US authorities lost the trail of Joseph Maloney. Having now settled into Ireland, Michael O'Shea, who appeared hungry to get into the Irish film business, was delighted to get a meeting with Jerry. This guy walked in one day and said to me, big tall fellow, he was about six foot two or three or whatever it was, uh, ginger-haired fellow, looked a bit rough looking. And he said, you Jerry Johnson? He said, yeah. He said, my name is Michael O'Shea. And with that, he took out his passport and showed me, and immediately I was just suspicious. He wanted to know about how you do pyrotechnics and things like that. You might remember that when Joe Maloney was growing up in Rochester, New York, with his friend Neil, who we met in episode two, Joe worked for a construction company. And he was interested in explosives. I taught him a little bit about explosives, and he learned about a. He got good with explosives all by himself. He was using dynamite. Joe Maloney might have changed his name to Michael O'Shea, but it seems he couldn't hide his interest in blowing things up. But without knowing any of this, Jerry Johnston instinctively didn't trust this man who called himself Michael O'Shea. I had a sneaky suspicion he was maybe involved with subversives. You don't show a person that you meet immediately your passport. Jerry told Michael to get lost. He didn't trust him. He said, your friend said I, you could give me some work. So I said, no, I don't have any work for you at the moment. And so that was that. For now, Michael would have to bide his time to get into the Irish film business. But that wasn't the only business opportunity he was looking for. It was the early 1970s, and he bought a small garage in the centre of Dunleary. It was a body repair shop. They didn't sell cars, they repaired crashed cars. If you put a dent in your car, you'd leave it in with them. Michael quickly became well-known in the local area. One of his newfound friends was the owner of a local record shop next to his garage. Hello, my name is Pamela Mackery. I was born Fenning, Pamela Fenning. My father was Desmond Fenning, and he owned a record shop in the old Dunleary shopping centre, before it was the shopping centre. The best person to talk to it is my sister Vanessa, whom I can phone now if you like. Yeah, that would yeah, be great. Fine. That's okay. okay. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. Now she might be there. I don't know. She will. So yeah. is she? Is she in Ireland? No, she's not. She's in um, in Florida. Yeah. Hello. How are you? Have you got a few minutes? Yeah. Okay. I had a call this afternoon from a lovely gentleman who you will never guess wants to talk about Michael O'Shea. No way. It's a long time since Pamela and Vanessa have talked about Michael O'Shea, but he's a man they've never forgotten. A man who drifted into their lives when they were young women because of a friendship he formed with their dad. Michael was just larger than life. The way Michael and Daddy met was at um, the auctioneers. What was the name? Buckley's. In In 1971, Michael moved into a rented house in an affluent area of South Dublin. I met him, but very fleetingly. I wouldn't even have had a conversation like you and I are having. Um, 
He was big, uh, like reddish hair, dirty looking, really scruffy. Um, and he was just somebody that was a friend of my father's and mother's. In those early years settling into Ireland, Michael worked especially hard at making a good impression. Things like if you broke down, I'll be there, I'll come get you, no problem. That kind of thing, if your car broke down. He would drop everything and come pick you up. And there was something that happened. It was something like uh, Daddy got a letter from the taxman saying he owed something or other. And Michael said, don't you leave it to me, I'll sort him out. That kind of thing. He was always on your side. But even though Michael had created a new name for himself and a new identity, there were things about his true self, about Joe Maloney, that he could never hide or change. He was definitely volatile, really, really volatile. One of my closest friends is a solicitor and she knew Michael from some legal thing. And when I was saying, oh, my God, she said, oh, he tried to kill my brother. And I said, what? Yes, she said, her brother Joe went down to serve a writ or something. And Michael drove at him with a car. That rage that had driven Joe Maloney to allegedly murder his wife, June, there were still glimpses of that showing up in Dublin in the life of Michael O'Shea who by now was telling people he came from an Anglo-Irish family from Kerry in the southwest of Ireland and had served in the Middle East with the Royal Engineers, a regiment of the British Army. Pat Fitzsimons remembers how Michael liked to display his old war wounds and tell a story about how he got them. He showed me a photograph of himself in a British Army uniform. Well, he said it was a British Army. I wouldn't have known. And... He was shot up in Aden, a terrorist young lad with a machine gun ambushed this particular patrol they were on. And he, he, he pulled up his shirt and showed me he'd scar, scarring across here and he nearly died. That's the story. the story. And of course, my father believed it as well. You know, my father had no reason not to believe it. Michael O'Shea had told Jerry Johnston, the movie special effects supervisor, the same story. He was an imposter. He used to tell people he was a colonel in the army and he was in charge of the uh, engineers, which was basically cannons and things like that, all that. But he just wasn't. He was a spoofer from day one. Of course, Michael had never fought in the British army and that stomach war wound story was complete fantasy. In fact, it was one of the identifying physical features that the FBI were circulating at that time in their search for Joe Maloney. Six foot two to six foot three in height, just over 12 stone in weight. Slender build, red hair, blue eyes, light complexion, scar on right eyebrow, operation scar on right side of abdomen. Ireland was a relatively innocent country back in the early 1970s and not a place you'd expect to find one of the FBI's most wanted fugitives. But there weren't con men like that out that time in Ireland. You'd believe everybody. That's Pat's wife, Margaret. Did you think he was a great guy? I I liked him, you know. I thought he was interesting. Well, he was so plausible. He, he didn't have an American accent or anything, you know? So he... Did he say he was Royal Engineers or something? Something like that, yeah. A specific regiment? The Engineering Corps. 
And probably that's how he got the link in with my father, being in the engineering business. You'll remember we previously told you that in 1973, Irish Gardaí investigated Michael O'Shea as the FBI fugitive Joseph Maloney after an altercation in a house in Dublin resulted in his fingerprints being taken. So from here on in, the Gardaí and the FBI knew who Michael really was and where he was. But he didn't know that they knew. It would be another 13 years for the extradition treaty between Ireland and the US to be signed into law. And it was during these years, from the mid-1970s until his arrest in 1985, that Michael O'Shea lived life like landed gentry. And that began when, by total chance, the garage he had bought in Dunleary stood in the way of the local council's plans for a new shopping centre. When uh, it was proposed that they build the shopping centre... Pamela Fenning. My father, look, looking at maps, realised that one of his neighbours in the locale was pivotal to the entire project. And this was Michael O'Shea. So he went to Michael and he said, Michael, they can't proceed if you, if you say no. So you're entitled to an awful lot, a better price. So my father and he kind of like, he was, Michael was so grateful to my father um, for that advice and he made a lot of money. Michael eventually sold to the council for a hugely inflated price and then moved his garage a mile and a half down the road to the leafy suburbs of Dalkey. And at his new home, he became romantically involved with the girl next door, literally. Her name was Sheila Chandler, and she lived with her parents next to Michael's house. Sheila fell in love with Michael. In 1974, after a relatively short courtship, they got married in a low-key ceremony at the Catholic Church in Dalkey. Sheila took the name Sheila Chandler O'Shea and appeared to have absolutely no idea she had just got married to someone who had been charged with murdering his previous wife. Newly married life for Michael and Sheila began with a spectacular purchase in the Midlands of Ireland, thanks to the money Michael had got from the sale of his garage. In 1975, Mr O'Shea took over this 19th century mansion, nestling at the foot of the Sleeve Bloom Mountains in County Leash. Set in 125 acres, Cabot House has its own courtyard, stables and a marble staircase. So I'm here in Rosenalis in County Leash, standing at the entrance of Capard House. This is where Michael O'Shea... It's incredible how he went from a murder charge, an indictment in Rochester, to here, to a mansion, to a stately home, for a dating from 1790 in the middle of Leash. How did he do it? It seemed like every step of the way, he managed to fool everyone and, and all his fantasies and all his lies and all his deception actually worked for him. He bought 120 acres with it, mountaintop land. You know, there's about maybe half of that is really land you could do something with. 
This is Peter Collins with his wife Tanya at their home near Capard House. Michael O'Shea bought this rural stately home with its own lake, shooting rights and a history stretching back to the late 1700s. The house came with a caretaker, a German woman called Erika Lotz, who will play a very important part in this story later on. She she was in she was involved in almost every major event in in you know yeah. she was in Dresden during the bombing she was in the fascinating Berlin fascinating the survival story yeah, of the Dresden bombing. But back to 1975, not long after moving into Capard House in the rural Midlands of Ireland, Michael O'Shea asked Peter and Peter's business partner Franz to do some work on his stately home. Capard needed a lot of work and there were a lot of outbuildings and sheds and things like that so the first summer we just worked putting roofs on those and potato storage houses and things like that. (laughs) Peter can vividly recall Michael O'Shea. Very much larger than life and a very attractive guy. You know, attractive, you know, engaging. Big personality. Yeah, big personality, six foot something, you know, kind of shock of red hair and a big beard on him. You know, very, yeah. But Peter was never quite sure what was true and what was a lie when it came to Michael O'Shea. He had the appearance of a 45, 50-year-old man. But if you added up together the, all the things that he had done... He had to be 136 or seven. Um, <laughs> so um, he had he'd almost qualified as a doctor, spent six years at college doing that. He had qualified as an engineer, spent five years doing that. Um, he had been a major influence with the construction and launching of the Kishbank Lighthouse. That's a lighthouse off Dublin that was built in Dunleary Harbour. All of these biographical details gave Michael a deep and varied backstory in Ireland. None of it true, of course. And then there was his new wife, Sheila Chandler O'Shea. Sheila worked as a receptionist at Switzer's, a fancy department store in Dublin's Grafton Street. She was, in almost every way, the polar opposite to Michael. Yeah, very, 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 very different personalities. I mean, yeah. While he was loud and rambunctious, she was quiet and mousy. He was tall, she was short. She had poor eyesight and spent her youth reading in her garden in Dublin. Did they seem to be very much in love? What what sort of relationship did they have? I found it kind of hard to fathom because they were so utterly different personality-wise. You know, she was shy... Introverted, you know, Michael couldn't see deer walking across the fields without thinking how he was going to bring it down and put it in the freezer, you know, whereas she was sort of totally enamoured by the idea that she'd, you know, have them in the wild there. For all their differences, Sheila was utterly devoted to her husband. An incredibly reliable person, um, whereas Michael was all dreams and it'll be all... Be grand on the day and you know, just bluff your way through it. And there was a lot of bluffing. 
Michael used to travel the locality on horseback and give the impression of a skilled horseman before the horse would run off at him. But whatever the horse thought of Michael, Michael seemed totally attached to one particular horse. Strangely attached. Joey was his name. And Joey was quarter bred. You know, he had a quarter thoroughbred and the rest was whatever. But he was a beautiful looking horse. The horse's name was Joey. Yeah. The horse's name yeah. was Joey. Yeah. It's fascinating to know that because his son's name was Joey in Rochester in upstate New York. I didn't know he had kids. I never knew he had kids. Michael O'Shea had completely abandoned his son Joey and his daughter Patty Ann. Right throughout the early 1970s at family courts in the state of New York, social workers made repeated attempts to place Joe Maloney's children up for adoption. A caseworker employed by the Monroe County Department of Social Services alleged that Joseph Scott Maloney and Patricia Ann Maloney, children under 16 years of age, have been neglected and abandoned by their father, Joseph M. Maloney, and praying that a summons be issued to the said Joseph M. Maloney and that his consent to adoption be dispensed with by reason of the aforesaid neglect and abandonment. It was also during this time that Michael O'Shea bought his way into the Irish film business by purchasing an expensive camera tracking vehicle from Ardmore Studios. I started off in commercials in Ireland and that's when I probably first met Mick O'Shea. This is Barry Blackmore, who worked in almost every area of the Irish film industry. He knew Michael O'Shea as Mick. Ardmore Studios, says Barry. Went into liquidation and they sold off all their equipment. And he bought a Mole Richardson tracking vehicle, which is a very high-spec camera car that has various rigs on it. This camera car would in time open up a whole new world for Michael O'Shea. It was a multifunctional camera vehicle. So this was a big deal for someone to have equipment. It was a big deal and he was the only one in Ireland who had it. But for now, he was living at large, regularly entertaining friends at his stately home in the countryside. Caparat House, it was a fine big old house. He invited us down for dinner. Do you remember there was a big driveway up to it, Margaret? Yeah, it was, yeah, there was a driveway up. Pat and Margaret Fitzsimons can still remember that night when Michael O'Shea simply couldn't hide his true self, his inner Joe Maloney. We were only in the big kind of a dining room, high ceilinged. It was evening when we were there, wasn't it, Margaret? Yeah. And do you remember the cattle broke into the his garden or his field, and he got mad excited with a shotgun. He was going to start shooting them. I just remembered this madman, you know, <laughs> a person that I wouldn't like to be around, so, you know. He just gave you a, a oh, bit of a an feeling. An uncomfortable feeling, an uncomfortable feeling. He had all these weapons in, in, the, in the house, and I remember him showing me, uh, I think he had a big... Sp- a spear, an African thing, and he had a Gorka knife, I think, and stuff like that. He had an old flintlock pistol or something. Capard was not far from where Joe Maloney's mother was born and where Joe visited many times before going on the run. He could so easily have been recognised by family members, but that didn't seem to worry him 
By the late 1970s, he had really settled into his new home. Yeah, he was always, you know, very present and a huge presence around here. And, like, he was employing, what, over 20, 24 people at one stage. I think he knew Michael as well as he knew himself. And he was a man that invented himself as he went along. And if he accepted that, then he was a very attractive person to be around because he was very imaginative, great raconteur, very easy company. But if you gave him an arm and a leg, you had no guarantee that you were going to get it back. Outwardly, he played the role of the well-heeled Lord of the Manor. But in reality, Michael was being watched, monitored in Ireland by the Gardaí and by the FBI from the US. And he was living on borrowed time. This is from Donald Chesworth, who was, in 1979, was the district attorney. We're back with Wendy Lehman, retired assistant district attorney in Rochester, New York. I spoke with FBI, advised them that we are still interested in extraditing Mr. Maloney and that the warrant is still outstanding for his arrest. On September 13, 1977, Special Agent informed me that Mr. Maloney is currently residing in Ireland. The attached details as to Mr. Maloney's address and the assumed name of Michael O'Shea. And it's just um, his whereabouts. This from 1977 says Joseph Michael Maloney, using the name Michael O'Shea, is still residing in Ireland. His residence is um, Dublin. He recently bought Capard House, Rosinalis. But without the existence of an extradition treaty between Ireland and the United States, there was nothing the FBI or the Gardaí could do. By 1980, Michael O'Shea had managed to wrangle his way into the Irish film business. And true to his style, he went in on top onto the set of Excalibur, one of the biggest movie productions Ireland had seen in years. A wizard's ancient spell. Into the eyes of the dragon and in despair. The film launched the careers of some of the world's biggest movie stars, including Liam Neeson, Helen Mirren, Gabriel Byrne, directors Jim Sheridan and Neil Jordan also had jobs on the film. Excalibur. And somewhere in its vast army of crew was Michael O'Shea. Mick was one of the main guys providing the weapons, and the swords and the shields and all that. This is Morris O'Callaghan, a filmmaker, screenwriter and novelist who worked on Excalibur as a horse stunt rider. He also knew Michael as Mick. Mick was particularly good at anything to do with fighting, with providing weapons for fighting, be it sword fighting, be it fencing, be it shooting Ultimately, in, in, in other pictures that he did, you know, he was like an arms provider. He was like an arms manufacturer. He was into weapons, you know. That, that was his, his thing. And weapons are what brought Michael O'Shea back to the attention of Jerry Johnston, who, along with special effects, also oversaw health and safety on film and TV sets. A crew member on one set told Jerry... There's a guy here with guns and I don't trust him. Uh, so I said, hey, what's his name? He said, she said to me, he's Michael O'Shea. Guns? Jerry didn't know what to think. So he arranged to meet Michael to see what was going on. And he said, I have a lot of guns. And I said, what? 
He said, yeah, I have a lot of guns, cases, cases in the boots of the car, parked on the keys in Dublin. Michael's car was parked beside the River Liffey in Dublin when Jerry met him. What Jerry didn't know was that Michael O'Shea had a long history with guns, and the FBI wanted poster of Joseph Maloney said as much. Joseph Michael Maloney, also known as Joe Maloney or Red Maloney, born April 9, 1935, Rochester, New York, wanted by the FBI for interstate flight, murder, caution, Maloney has been convicted of illegal possession of a firearm, he may be armed and should be considered dangerous. Not being privy to any of this, here was Jerry standing in central Dublin alongside a man armed to the teeth who was wanted on a first-degree murder charge and considered armed and dangerous by the FBI. And together they were peering into O'Shea's car, which was full of weapons. So it was like sort of four or five cases with handguns and machine guns and rifles, you name it. I was thinking more, again, this guy's is maybe not licensed for anything like that. He hadn't got an armourer's licence or nothing. But Jerry agreed to let Michael come back to the studio to demonstrate his guns. And I put up a polystyrene sheet about 20 feet away and they said to him, OK, fire those guns. And lumps came out of them. Lumps? Lumps came out of the polystyrene. So they had bullets in them? Gunpowder, but he had it compressed. He maybe made up his own. Michael O'Shea was firing live rounds out of weapons that were to be used on film sets. It was like he was playing with death. In our next episode... Tim, you won't believe this. I've just been speaking to one of Joe Maloney's children. Oh, I used to daydream. I used to daydream that my dad would come back. I mean... I'm sorry. I'm 66 years old almost, and I'm still wanting to see my dad. Join us next time for Episode 5, The Ripple Effect. As this is a live investigation, if you have any knowledge of Joseph Maloney, a.k.a. Michael O'Shea, or his wife in Ireland, Sheila Chandler O'Shea, please contact us immediately, in confidence, via documentaries at rte.ie. Runaway Joe is written, reported and produced by me, Pavel Barter and Tim Desmond. Production assistance from Nicolene Greer. Music is by Martin Kluzak and Tomasz Barrow. The sound engineer is Patter Carney and the executive producer for RTE Documentary on One is Liam O'Brien. <laughs>